What is the good life? People have been seeking to answer that question forever. What what makes life good? What makes life worth living? Several different answers have been proposed and tried over time. Which one is best? The ancient Greeks thought often about this question. I, I guess they had a lot of spare time on their hands. Socrates, you've heard of, I'm sure, is born in 470 BC. He gave his description of the good life. The good life to him was not found by blindly following one's desires. Rather, the good life is a life that questions and thinks about things. It is a life of contemplation, self-examination, open-minded wondering. The good life is an inner life, the life of an inquiring mind. And clearly, Socrates was not concerned with the external, but with the internal. Socrates lived during the golden age of Athens, when the city was just exploding with with opulence, wealth, building projects. Yet he looked down on on the wealth his countrymen pursued and the vain military glory they sought after. He didn't think much of these things. Later in life, he was, in fact, executed by the city-state of Athens for corrupting the minds of the youth with his ideas. But nonetheless, his ideas about the good life carried on and influenced many future philosophers. The Stoics came along, similar to Socrates. They believed the good life was an inner life. But more than just introspective thinking, they they thought the good life involved controlling one's emotions and fears. They, generally speaking, wanted to avoid the highs and the lows in life. The Epicureans came along. They were different. In contrast to Socrates, the Epicureans believed that pleasure was the greatest good. They weren't extreme, though. Their focus was not on the pursuit of pleasure, per se, but rather just on avoiding pain. They believed the greatest good in life was being free from fear and pain. That was the the good life. Others were more extreme. The Cyrenaics, they were ultra-hedonists. They also believed that pleasure was the greatest good, but not just the avoidance of pain, but that positive pursuit of, of pleasurable experiences and sensations, They believed pleasure was the only good in life and pain the only evil and that everyone should just focus on this pursuit of external pleasure. It was all external to them. All this thinking, whatever the camp, took place some 2,400 years ago, these ancient Greeks. Yet today, not a lot has changed. Today, we still see people basically exploring these same options. Some believe the good life is that simple life. They seek to own as little as possible, maybe live off the land, spend their time introspectively. They sit, they meditate. They're free from the worries of the world around them. To them, the good life is internal. Others believe the good life is external. They also believe that happiness is found in the pleasures of the world. So they go after and live for money and houses and cars. They accumulate possessions. They live by the motto, he who dies with the most stuff wins. They live for experiences like food and entertainment and vacations. They pursue even the vices of sex, drugs, and alcohol. That's out of marriage. Yet both of these approaches fall short, whether ancient or modern, stoic or epicurean, internal or external. Neither leads to the good life. Both approaches lead you to feel empty, meaningless, dissatisfied. There was another ancient philosopher, though. He lived actually hundreds of years before Socrates, He found the same thing long beforehand. In fact, he actually tried both of these approaches, the internal, the external. He tried them both. He tried the internal. He devoted himself to learning and wisdom and knowledge. He tried to live simply. 
It just didn't work, though. It didn't satisfy. It didn't bring the good life. He tried the external. He devoted himself to pleasure, to women, drinking, entertainment, wealth. This didn't work either. This also didn't satisfy, and it didn't lead to the good life. It wasn't until later in life that he finally found the path to the good life as an old man. He discovered the good life is found only in God. And if you haven't guessed it, this ancient philosopher was Solomon. And long before the great Greek philosopher, Solomon discovered that that all life, whether you live it internally or externally, everything, it's, it's, it's vanity. It's futile, it's meaningless, it's, it's pointless, apart from God. Only when God is in your life and at the center of your life can you find any satisfaction in life, can you find the good life. It doesn't mean you just sit in a corner and stare at the wall and think about God all day. It means you just live life with God always on your mind and his will always on your mind. As Solomon concluded at the end of his book, Ecclesiastes 12.13, he says the conclusion, when all has been heard, whatever philosophy you want, the conclusion is this, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. What he's saying is, go ahead, live your life however you want, so long as you are fearing God and keeping his commandments. And you will find peace, joy, contentment. You'll you'll find a good life by fearing him and and keeping his commandments. Centuries after Solomon, another person came along and discovered the same thing, the Apostle Paul, finding that life cannot be found apart from God. In Acts chapter 17, we find Paul. He's traveling around. He ends up in Athens, the city of Socrates and the philosophers. He goes to the, the town square, you could say, and he finds... Epicureans and Stoics, and they're still doing the same thing. They're still sitting around talking about the good life. They're still pondering. But he finds them, he preaches to them, and he makes it clear that there is no good life apart from God, apart from knowing him and being known by him, and apart from knowing his son and being in right relationship with the resurrected Christ. And perhaps a decade after this, This message is echoed yet again, this time from the Apostle Peter. And Peter likewise confirms that no good life can be found apart from God, from knowing him, from living rightly before him. We're in the middle of 1 Peter chapter 3 today. Open your Bibles there if you haven't already. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're coming to finish the second section of this letter. If you remember, this this section began back at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In the first section of the letter, Peter, he starts off telling us about salvation. This is your salvation. And here is how you are to live in light of the salvation in respect to one another. But but how should we live in respect to the world? That's his main concern from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 3, verse 12, which is where we're going to end up today. Throughout these verses... Peter's just repeating himself over and over again with God's strategy for how Christians are to live in the world. In various situations, whether in the state, in the workplace, in the home. And today with his final section, he's going to sum it all up. And he's going to say, whether you're in the world or in the church, wherever you are, 
This is how you are to live. This is God's strategy for living overall. Let's read together our verses, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We have a lot of verses to cover here, so we're going to just get into it from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. We want to discover the three elements to God's strategy for living overall so that you may live the good life. And this is the last in our little strategy theme that we've had in this, this middle section here. Three elements to God's strategy for living overall so that you may live the good life. And the first element is the right attitude. From verse 8, the right attitude. In verse 8 again, he says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Like we said, Peter, he's summing up his teaching here in this section on how to live in the world. And these final five attitudes, they really apply generally across the board. He's no longer restricting his instruction to husbands and wives or, or slaves and masters. This is for everyone now, everyone in the church. This is the corporate conduct that should characterize all members of the church at all times. This is for you. We're going to go through this list, spend a little time on these five attitudes, these right attitudes. The first one is, it's right there, be harmonious. Number one, be harmonious. And what is harmony? It's not just a town about an hour north of here with population 18, if you've been there. It's kind of funny. Every Thanksgiving when I was a kid, my family would and I would go to Cayucas for our Thanksgiving. We had friends there. And we'd always stop by Harmony and go to the little glassblower shop. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it's kind of funny because now here we are living not too far away from there. But no, the word Harmony here in the Greek, it's formed by jamming together the word for oneness and the word for mind, just throwing them together. It's, it's one-mindedness or like-mindedness. To be harmonious with others is to be united with them. One in mind, one in commitment. This is part of being the church. Why don't you turn to Romans 12 and keep a bookmark there because we'll be going back and forth. Romans 12. Strangely enough, there's a lot of parallels here with our passage in 1 Peter and Romans chapter 12. So like I said, keep a thumb there because we'll come back. But Romans 12, look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Verse 16, very similar to our verse, be of the same mind toward one another. 
He's saying we're part of the same body, Christ's body, and therefore we are to live in harmony and unity. And understand, this unity is not superficial. It's not the same thing as uniformity. Uniformity, it's, it's a false unity. It's a phony unity. It's making people look the same, dress the same. That's what cults do. Cults force their people to be uniform, so to foster upon them a false sense of, of unity. Remember the Heaven's Gate cult back in the 90s? They had that mass suicide. They forced all their adherents to wear long sleeve black t-shirts, long black sweatpants, and black Nike tennis shoes. That's just a superficial unity, though. It doesn't mean anything. It's not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about unanimity. Unity in the church doesn't mean everyone has to have the same opinions and preferences about everything under the sun. Instead, what makes the church so distinct is that so many unique, different, and diverse people can still come together as one despite their differences, their preferences. This is accomplished by a shared commitment to Christ, a shared commitment to his truth, and it's a supernatural thing. That's what Jesus taught in John 17. And the world would would know that God is true by the church's unity because there's no way that's happening naturally. People don't just come together like that. And so we are are told to be harmonious, harmonious harmonious with others in the body. And so ask yourself, do you find yourself living in harmony with others in the body here at this church, Christianity abroad? Do you get along with others? Or do you ignore others? Do you find yourself avoiding certain people? Yeah, I'll I'll be united with the body, but but not that person. I'll just avoid them. How involved are you? Apart from your casual Sunday morning attendance, if someone was watching your week, would they say, wow, that person is really a part of that body? Or would they say, well, they go to church on Sundays, but otherwise they're not really a part of that body? And too often, people in the church let their, their preferences and their personalities get in the way of unity and harmony. Now, this shouldn't be the case. Put a love for Jesus and his truth above your personal preferences. And therefore, number one here, pursue harmony with the body. First attitude, be harmonious. The second attitude is be sympathetic. Be sympathetic. This next word is taken almost directly over from the Greek, sympathes or sympathy in English. This word is derived from the word for feeling or emotion, which is pathos, and has the prefix soon, meaning with. So sympathy is it's feeling with someone. This is where you share someone's feelings, the good, the bad, the pain, and the joy. Immediately I think of Romans 12, 15, which if you're still there, you can look at verse 15. It says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's sympathy. You are sharing the feelings of others. And this is such an important attitude for those in the church to have because this is how we show tangibly our care and our concern for one another, through the sympathy. Just listen to this. You don't have to turn here, but 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Talking about the body of Christ, the church. If one member is honored... All the members rejoice with it. It's it's the shared experience of the body. Sympathy. Be sympathetic. I remember one time when I was a kid, 
playing in my room. I, I don't know. I must have been 10 or I don't really remember. But I do remember this event quite well for whatever reason. I had this spinning chair, you know, those chairs that just spin around, and I was jumping off of it. Not a good idea because spinning chairs are not the best jumping platforms. So I remember, I remember this while I jumped off. The chair just spun around, and I fell on the ground where I wasn't supposed to fall, obviously. And, and I remember my knee just slamming into a hammer. Now, what was a hammer doing on the floor of my room? I honestly don't remember, but I'm honestly not surprised. And needless to say, I remember the pain. The pain was intense. It just really shot through me. And, you know, the only part of my body was injured was my knee. But I'll tell you, my whole body felt it. And my whole body was, was reeling in pain from this. You just can't detach the pain from your body. It's the same with the church body. When one member suffers, when one person is, is down, or rejoices for that matter, we all do. This is a good thing. So that all may share in the healing and the encouragement of the weak member. And that's why this sympathy its such an important attitude for you to have. And people at times, they go through hurt, they need others to care for them. And that care should be found in the church. If someone can't find that care in the church, then we have just utterly and pathetically failed as the body of Christ. So be th- sympathetic. And maybe you find yourself, though, to be apathetic, which is the opposite. It's where you, you don't have that sympathy. You just don't care. You're indifferent towards someone's hurt or rejoicing. And if that's you, go back to that first attitude, harmonious. You need to get involved in the body. Get yourself plugged in. Invested in other people's lives such that you care for them like you care for yourself. That's how you, you foster a sympathy. Get, <coughs> excuse me. Get invested in, in the lives of others. This is what is required if you are to live rightly before God and have an impact on the watching world. Speaking of flesh and blood, though, the third attitude we have fits right in, be brotherly. third attitude prescribed here is to be brotherly. Now, I bet some of you can guess what word this is in the Greek. Some of you have a little bit of that knowledge. It's Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love. And yes, this is where we get the city name Philadelphia from. Philadelphia was used in Greek literature of love for physical brothers and sisters, but then Christianity it's used figuratively of of love for spiritual brothers and sisters, everyone in the family of God, everyone in the church, all true believers, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you should love them as such. You love for one another, especially in the church. It's a mark of true salvation, of true spiritual life. Why is that? Because the heart that has been born again, the heart that has been made alive in Christ, by definition, just overflows with love. You can't stop it if you're truly saved. You're just going to love other people because God has loved you. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And Peter himself has a lot to say about brotherly love. He, he gives us several reminders. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 22. 1 Peter 1, 22. Keep your thumb in Romans 12. He says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, 
Here's the command. Fervently love one another from the heart. He says a very similar thing in, in 1 Peter chapter 4. Turn the page now to chapter 4, verse 8. This is the verse you're, you might be more familiar with. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep fervent, there's that same word, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So several times Peter is concerned that we are loving one another. He knows that sometimes families don't get along, including God's family on earth because of sin, of course. And so we need these frequent reminders. It's like, oh yeah, you know what? I should be loving these people. I need to be reminded to to pursue a love for them, even if they offend me, even if they harm me, wrong me. I need to love them. I think of all places, we in the church must be the ones to show a real brotherly love and a brotherly loyalty toward one another. Last year, two grown children in Illinois sued their mother for being a bad mom. Uh, That's pretty sad. They sought 50000 for emotional distress stemming from the damage of her supposed bad mothering. The children's lawyer was, in fact, their father, who had a long time ago divorced their mother. And the case was bogus. It was thrown out by the court. But what a pathetic example of family loyalty. I mean, families, above all, should just stick together through thick and thin. doesn't matter if you're being offended or not. There should be this basic level of family loyalty and love. And we in the church should be that way all the more so. Same holds true in the church. Thirdly now, be brotherly. That's what we're talking about. Be brotherly. Number four, be kind-hearted. We're still in verse 8 here in 1 Peter 3. Be kind-hearted. We've got a great word in the Greek, eusplagnos. It's derived from the word splagnon, which refers to your gut. And today, where do we think as where do, where do we think that our emotions come from? We say the heart. You know, our emotions come from the heart. It's where we picture it. Well, I ask you this: when you when you get really nervous, where do you feel it? In your stomach. When you laugh really hard, where do you feel it? In your stomach. And that's probably why the ancient Greeks they thought the center of our emotions was not the heart, but but the gut, the stomach. That's what this word refers to. And he's saying, be full of this gut feeling, this gut emotion towards others, and we call that compassion. Being tender-hearted, being kind-hearted. We use the word kind-hearted, not kind-gutted, because we're into the heart. But this tender-heartedness or compassion, it's one of the deepest, most meaningful emotions you can have. When you feel sympathetic, you're feeling for another person. When you are compassionate, you're feeling with another person. It's a deeper thing. You're being moved to emotion yourself, and therefore you're most times moved to action. And so ask, are you compassionate like this? Do you feel with others? Are you moved to help those who are in need because of your compassion? Let's say one afternoon you decide to go on a walk. You're on your way home. You see something on the sidewalk up ahead. You get a little closer, and it's not a thing. It's a person. A person has been beaten bloodied, robbed. You get closer, they look half dead. You look around, no one's around. So what do you do? You turn around walk away. You cross the street and then pretend you didn't see anything. Or do you feel compassion 
and help the person. And you know the compassionate response. And you probably also know this is the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10. This is what happened. Here's a man beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. The righteous priest and the Levite walk by. They, they cross the street. They, they look the other way. But the Samaritan comes. He sees the man. Luke 10.33 says he felt compassion for the man. And so he helped him. His compassion led him to bandage his wounds, carry him to an inn, pay for his care. There's really no better picture of being tender-hearted or kind-hearted. That's what we're talking about here. And is this you? Are you like this? Or are you like the, the cold-hearted one who crosses the street? Someone comes in the church, they're, they're broken, they're in need of help, even just a shoulder to cry on. Do you feel for them and with them, or, or you just turn away, I don't, I don't have time for this, i got to watch football. And well, who are you? You will encounter many beaten and broken people in the church, usually spiritually speaking. Have compassion on them, come alongside them, help them be kind-hearted. Number five on our list, lastly, be humble. Be humble, 1 Peter 3.8, humble in spirit. And this last attitude is a fitting way to end this section because humility, it's that essential Christian virtue and it's definitely needed for those being called to submit which we've seen over and over again in this second section in our letter. Humility is that virtue of not thinking too highly of yourself and thinking more highly of others around you, just like we read in Philippians 2, 3, and 4 this morning. Peter's going to come back to this. If you turn again to 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse 5. First Peter 5, 5, he says, You younger men... Likewise, be subject to your elders. There's that submission command. And all of you, now he's talking to everyone, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Not just any humility. Humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And you don't want God being opposed to you. You want his grace. Be humble. This humility comes by getting the right perspective on things. It's all about perspective when it comes to humility. If you were to stand next to you at a chihuahua all day, you would start to have a pretty elevated view of your strength and your power. If you were to stand next to you at a Tyrannosaurus Rex all day, not so much. You catch my drift? It's, it's about perspective. The Christian views himself as standing next to God all day. And it's really nothing more humbling than that. We realize we are nothing, we deserve nothing. That has a humbling effect. How could you then treat others like they are nothing when you realize that we are we're dust before God, all of us? We're nothing. So get this right perspective and then be humble. Be humble towards others. Consider yourself less important, them more important. None of these four other attitudes can be achieved without this. So these are it. These are the right attitudes that you need to have. These are at least five attitudes behind that good life, which we'll talk about later. But show me a person who is the opposite of these things, these five attitudes. They're divisive, apathetic, selfish, mean, and proud. Show me someone like that. I'll show you someone who's a miserable person, living a terrible life and not being blessed by God. I guarantee they don't have a good life in God's eyes. God blesses these attitudes. They're necessary for that good life which we'll talk about. But first, 
Let's get on to our next element of God's strategy here. Number one was the right attitude. Number two now is the right action. The right action. The second requirement for that blessed life, you could say. The right action. I'm going to skip verse 9 for a second. We'll come back. But this is from verses 10 and 11. The right action. Verse 10. He says, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So we're talking here about how God wants us to live, whether we're at, in the home, in the church, in the world, wherever. And of course... God's overall strategy, it's going to include our right attitudes. It's also going to include our right actions. And that's what we're finding out in verses 10 and 11. And there's two basic categories of right action here. We're going to go through these. The first is what we say. Or speech, what we say. God's prescription for you in verse 10 is to keep your tongue from evil and keep your lips from speaking deceit. This is, of course, not an anatomy lesson that's talking about your speech. God is here prohibiting all unedifying speech, anything profane, degrading, impure, slanderous, vile. The tongue is mentioned here referring to how we speak. I probably don't need to remind you, but I will anyway. James 3 has plenty to say about the tongue. In fact, once you turn back there, we'll look at a verse. It's just backwards a little bit. James chapter 3. He says, watch out for it. Control it. Our speech is so reflective of our spiritual status James says, if you have perfect speech, you must be a perfect person. Of course, none of us have perfect speech. We are not perfect people. We stumble, especially in our speech, which is a bad thing, because the tongue can be very destructive. You ever gotten yourself into trouble with your speech? And you probably know what James is talking about, which reinforces what Peter is talking about. James chapter 3, let's start off, just look at verse 5. You can really read the whole chapter here, but verse 5, he says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Jump down to verse 8, just to finish the section. He says, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. And take Peter's instruction seriously, and that from James as well. Keep your tongue from evil. Bridle it, restrict it, chain it. You need to be in control of what you say. You may never get, again, a full mastery of your tongue. But God expects you to to obey. The battle to control your speech may be hard fought, but God wants no unwholesome or deceptive word to proceed from your mouth, only edifying speech, and he will give you the grace to comply. So consider your speech this morning. Is it out of control? Yeah, you fall short. We all do. But do you really have a speech problem? Is your tongue truly a fire setting on fire everyone around you? And if that's the case, do you expect God's blessing? Of course not. God's strategy, 
involves right action. First, this extends to what we say. Secondly, this extends to what we do. Remember, I said there's two categories behind this right action. First, what we say. Secondly, now, what we do. Getting into verse 11 in 1 Peter 3. There's four quick imperatives here. They all come from Psalm 34, verse 14. And they're all instructing us as to what we ought to do. Look at verse 11. He says, first, turn away from evil. Turn away from evil. The verb means to bend, to turn aside, to turn away from. It carries the idea of leaning or swerving away to avoid an encounter with evil. In some rural parts of the country, the number one danger for cars, really maybe for motorcyclists, it's not other cars. It's wildlife, especially deer. If you're driving or riding it and a deer just cuts across the road and you hit it, it could be fatal. And if that were to happen, the only thing a motorcyclist could do, for example, is just, just to lean and just bend over, try and swerve and, and avoid that collision. Uh, that's a picture here of you and sin. He says, turn away from it. You see it. It's in front of you. It's in the road, and you're headed for it. So, so bend, learn, or lean, swerve out of the way, and to avoid it is what you need to practice to avoid sin in your life. Instead, he says, do good. It's the second imperative, do good. Don't, don't merely just try and avoid bad things in your life, but also bend and swerve toward good. Sometimes the best way to keep away from evil in life is to just do good. Busy yourself with good behavior before the Lord and just, just choke out the room for sin in your life. It works. The third and fourth imperatives in verse 11 go together. He says, seek peace and pursue it. And I like this one. The picture now is, is of a hunter or, or a tracker. But it's not just any hunter. Today, a lot, a lot of people, they hunt by, they build these camouflage huts and they sit very patiently and they wait all day for their prey to come to them. It gets close enough and they shoot it and then they're done. But that's not what we're talking about here. There's a desperation to this pursuit. This is a hunter who just, he doesn't have time to wait around. He's going out. He's aggressively just trying to track down his prey. He's pursuing it. He's searching for it. He's desperately trying to find it. Only here the prey is peace. It's peace with others. Seek peace and pursue it. He's saying, don't just sit around and wait for peace to come. You have to go after it. Resolve the conflicts in your life so far as it depends on you. Ask for forgiveness from others whom you have sinned against. Give forgiveness to others who have sinned against you. He's talking about be a peacemaker. These are the right actions, broadly speaking, that God expects of you wherever you are. Say the right things. Do the right things. And here, I know this. This is not earth-shattering teaching for any of you here. I mean, for, for those of you here this morning, is this the first time you've ever heard that God expects you to avoid evil speech, turn from sin, to do good? First time? Anyone heard that this morning? No, it's not the first time you've heard it. But you see, we get these reminders often in Scripture because we need them often. You ever think about that? We need these often reminders. So, so don't tune all this out just because you know it. Instead, take this as, as a genuine opportunity to ask yourself, okay, I've heard this before, but still, how am I doing? Evaluate yourself and ask, how's my speech? How are my deeds? Have I been unwholesome in speech, out of control, hurtful? I need to repent and change. 
Have I been acting out of order? Have I been participating in that which displeases God? Have I been getting into conflicts with others and not resolving them? Repent, change. And remember, as you examine yourself, that if you get this right, it leads to the good life, a blessed life. That's how verse 10 starts. You see that? Look at the beginning of verse 10. He started this, these two verses off by saying, For the one who desires life to love and see good days, and then so on, must keep his tongue from evil. When Peter mentions life here, he's actually taking, talking about this life, life on earth, not eternal life. Now true, this life carries into the next life, but his focus here is on, is on this side of eternity. And what he's saying is, do you desire a good life? Do you want to see good days ahead? However many you may have, one, a thousand, or more. Do you want to see meaningful days? Do you want to love every day that, that God gives you? Then have the right actions. And this is not a, a works righteousness, trying to earn your salvation thing going on here. For those who already are believers, there, there's just a simple age-old truth in Scripture. God blesses obedience. He disciplines disobedience. It's really simple. Just listen. You can write this reference down, but listen. Romans 2, 9 through 10. Romans 2, 9 through 10 says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. It's really simple. It's not salvation. It's talking about just blessing in life. But like Solomon said, all life is vanity unless you do what? Fear God. And obey him. The good life is found in God in knowing him and then in honoring him here with the right actions. And yes, we, we live for eternity. That's what matters mo- most. But it's not wrong to desire a good life now and to have a blessed life on earth. It's not wrong to want that. But you can only find it, though, in God and in honoring him. To be sure, though, to have a, a blessed life now does, doesn't mean God will always keep you free from trouble and from persecution, and from hardship. But it does mean that you will still have contentment and joy in those hardships because God is with you. Even bad days are made good when you have God in your life. And this really shines through in First Peter because the next section is all about suffering. And he was talking to people who were suffering so much that they had so much joy in the Lord. And that is the true good life where God is that much the center of your life, that no matter what happens, you have joy in the Lord. There's no better life. Before we get there, though, we have our third element to God's strategy for living overall. It's the right reaction. We have the right attitude, the right action. Thirdly, it's the right reaction. Now think about this. Now we're going to go back to verse 9 in 1 Peter 3. Verse 9. He says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This one might catch you off guard. It's one thing to control your actions. It's another thing to control your your reactions, and that's way harder. Verse 9, it's not telling you just, just avoid evil. It's telling you not to respond in evil and in insults. It's covering your response when people treat you with evil and insults. This is not a reminder 
you want to take for granted because vengeance is just engraved on the fallen, sinful heart. It's the first thing we do when we're sinned against. We want to take revenge if our flesh is in control. When you get the other person back, at least equally, but it'd be better if we get them back more. That's how we are. Of course, this just escalates. The conflict gets out of hand. For it to end, someone has to choose to suffer evil and not get the other person back. That's how it has to end. This is why, though, for example, the conflict in the Middle East is unending. Someone does violence. Someone gets killed. Their family then takes revenge. More violence is done. Another person gets killed. Their family then takes revenge, and it never ends. Instead, we learn what? Romans chapter 12. One more time. Turn back there, Romans chapter 12. Go to verse 14. Just so happens, a lot of parallels today with, with this chapter in Scripture. Paul's first applicational chapter in the book of Romans. Romans 12, verse 14. Very similar, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Jump down to verse 17. It's strikingly similar. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's giving a blessing instead. That's what he's talking about. Same thing. This, this is talking about when people attack you physically and verbally. And that's how ver- verse 9 goes on. He says, don't return evil for evil, but also insult for insult. See, even the unbeliever at times will restrain themselves from lashing out physically at other people. But I haven't met anyone who can control their tongue. They still quickly resort to verbal Violence to insults to abusive speech. One commentator said, "This is trying to this is like trying to wash off dirt with dirt. It doesn't work. Insult for insult." Instead, verse nine in First Peter three goes on to say, "Instead, give a blessing. Give a blessing. That's quite the opposite and unexpected response when someone treats you with evil or with an insult. To bless." means to speak well of others or to do good to them. And can you just imagine this? Someone cuts in front of you in line at the market. And immediately you just you want to lash out at them and at least say something, but instead you buy their groceries. That never happens. <laughs> that never happens. We don't respond like this, but this is what we're talking about. Give a blessing instead. You see how opposite that is? But you see how impactful that would be? Tim Tebow, you guys have heard him, I'm sure, the popular Christian NFL quarterback who was in the news last year a lot. He was insulted over and over by this announcer named, named Boomer. He called out Tebow to be cut from the team, from the Broncos, now from the Jets, several times. Just insulted him a bunch, said he's, he really has nothing good to offer. And Tebow was told about this and asked for his response. He said this, quote, I've heard nothing but... Great things about Boomer. I wish him nothing but the best in his announcing. God bless him. End quote. 
That's a good response. It's a good response. What we're talking about here, it catches the world off guard because nobody responds like that. It's not natural. It's supernatural. Something has to be going on. And this is the right response. Verse 9, he ends, For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. He goes on to say, this verse is talking about God calling us to salvation. And this is the point he's making. He's he's saying, look, we Christians, we've received the ultimate blessing from God. We've already received that that full and total forgiveness and, and the wiping away of that huge sin debt. We've already received the greatest blessing, salvation, which comes only by believing in Christ, dead and resurrected, trusting in him for your salvation. And if you have, you've received the gift. And in fact, God actually saved us while we were his enemies. We were treating him with evil and insults. But he gave us a blessing instead. So the point Peter is making is that it's a small thing for us to do the same to others. When people sin against us, it is nothing compared to our sins against God. And we should therefore imitate his grace in giving a blessing toward others. Like Romans 12 said, God will repay. He's going he's gonna to figure it out in the end. People, No one's getting off free. Leave vengeance to God. He will repay justly, not us. So just trust God's justice. Imitate God's goodness. Give a blessing instead and have the right response. This is the right response. Don't return evil for evil. Give a blessing instead. Now, all that's left now is to just go over the result. You could maybe add a fourth point here, the result. And it's from verse 12. We've been talking about that good life that comes from heeding God's strategy here. And we see that result spelled out more in verse 12. We already saw it in verse 10. You desire life to love and see good days. Good days are rewarded to those who who do this. Verse 12, he continues with, with the blessed result of doing this. Verse 12, for... The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here again, we're not talking about God's anatomy, his literal eyes and ears. We're talking about God's person, his being, being depicted here as being all-seeing, all-knowing. And in particular, he has a special watchfulness over his people, favoring them, blessing them, attending to their prayers. Those who are righteous, which we know comes only by faith in Christ, God blesses here and hereafter. You need part of the truly good life. It's not the absence of difficulties. It's the fact that God is with you in those difficulties, hearing your prayers and just comforting you. Was that not David's comfort in Psalm 23? He says, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. His good life was not the fact that he had no calamity. It was the fact that God was with him in the calamity. Speaking of David, verses 10 through 12 in 1 Peter, they're all quoted from Psalm 34, which was written by David when he was in distress. David was anointed king by Samuel, but Saul was still in power, and then Saul turned on him. He tried to kill him. David fled, and he finds himself hiding in a cave while Saul and a huge army are trying to hunt him down and murder him. He's hiding out in a cave. He's got some spare time. He writes Psalm 34. Turn there. 
Let's finish. We're going to finish there. So this is the last place we'll go to. You. Psalm 34. I want you to turn there because I want you to see how this psalm begins, and we'll look at several verses here. Of course, a handful of them are quoted in our First Peter passage, but I want you to see the, the verses that aren't quoted but are equally encouraging to us. And picture yourself, an army is out to murder you. You're pretty helpless. You're hiding in a cave. You're going to write a little psalm to the Lord. How do you start that psalm? Verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And he goes on, verse 4, just like 1 Peter 3.12 says about the prayers, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. David knew that those who know God, those who fear God, enjoy a blessed life, just like his son Solomon would go on to, to say. David could even say this when an army was out to kill him. He could have this still join the Lord and worship of the Lord. Look down to verse 8. Great verses. 8 through 10. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions... Do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. I mean, forget Stoicism or Epicureanism, Hedonism, going after pleasures in life. If you want to desire, have, have no want of any good thing in life, just fear God. He'll bless you with what's truly good, fellowship with Him. And later on, you read, uh, I think it's in 2 Samuel, David had two opportunities to kill Saul. He was that close. He could have walked up to him and killed him and ended it, become king, freed himself from this, this pursuer. But he didn't do it both times. He feared God, and he, he, did not, he would not go against God's anointed one. And he also didn't want to return evil for evil. Instead, he gave a blessing. He trusted God more than that, even with his own life on the line. And that's why David is a model for believing in God and he's also a model of the result. Because God did indeed deliver him and bless him, rewarded him, made him the greatest king over his people ever. His life was not free from trouble, but David enjoyed a good, blessed life that results from honoring God, fearing him, following him, and obeying him. First Peter 3.12 ends by saying, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And you don't want that. You don't want... God against you. Not just his eyes, not just his ears, but his entire face turns against the wicked in judgment. And some Christians wonder, well, why do the wicked prosper? You see people in the world, they're, they're pretty wicked, but yet they're rich, they've got a yacht, they're living the high life, they don't have a worry in the world. They seem like they have a good life. What's going on? Why are the wicked prospering? What you don't realize, though, is that's not a good life. It's not a good life. Sometimes God gives wicked people all the, the riches and pleasures of the world on purpose, not to bless, but to curse. He lets them drink in the lust of the world like a poison, and it, it distracts them 
from God, from salvation. Again, in the, all, in the end, God will judge. You don't have to worry about a single wicked person prospering because they will never in the end. The second to the last verse in Psalm 34 says, Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be held guilty. And so for us, we just simply have to place our confidence and our hope in God. Life can be good, should be good, especially in eternity, but even now. Yet if you want to enjoy life, you need to enjoy God. You need this final strategy for living overall. Embrace and live out the right attitudes, the right actions, the right reactions, and your foot will not slip. God will be your shield. He will bless you more than you can imagine. The last verse of Psalm 34 reads, The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Pray with me. Lord, we, we do indeed take refuge in you. You're, you're our God. You're our shield. You are our good. We have tasted and seen that you indeed are good. So we worship you, Lord. We put our confidence in you. Our boast is in you. Our hope is in you. And we pray for your blessing in this life and hereafter. We, we pause and thank you, Lord, for that, that greatest gift, that greatest blessing, which is in Christ. We've already received his forgiveness. If anyone is here who hasn't trusted Christ for their salvation and doesn't have that, I mean, that'd be step one for them, and they not even leave without getting that right. But for those who know you, we, we thank you for the blessing. We thank you for your comfort in life. May we enjoy this life and all that it does have because we enjoy you, because we fear you, because we honor you. We look forward to the perfect life to come in eternity. Help us to live rightly before you now in light of that day. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.